Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Hope you're doing good. I know things are crazy out there, but I hope you're staying you're staying sane, staying healthy, not too not losing your marbles just yet. Today I've got a rad show. I have an interview with my friend Charles Post. Charles is an ecologist and a storyteller and We talk about the beautiful effect that this whole coronavirus and lockdown is having on our environment, giving it a little reprieve. We start there and we go way, way further than that. Charles and I are both sponsored by Keen Footwear, or used to be, (laughs) pre-virus. So... Um, We know each other and the conversation that I'm going to drop you into has kind of already started and you'll just pick up where we start. This is a great conversation. I think you guys are going to like this a lot. Charles is amazingly articulate. He is a really, really thoughtful person and he's super, super smart. He's got great insights. He's also just a deep bird lover and... Charles has a really great Instagram feed that's at Charles Post. I highly recommend checking it out. He does a lot of writing. It's very informational, and he maintains a high level of vulnerability and kind of lets you into his thoughts. I love his Instagram, so check it out. If you like this podcast, share it, subscribe, leave a review. That really helps, and consider donating. That's paypal.me slash air. Donate whatever feels good. Really appreciate your support on that. Making this thing go around. 100% listener-supported podcast, baby. So, without further ado, here's a little bit of music and my talk with my friend Charles Post. of infection because when this thing was starting in these cities everybody at the second home was like oh i'm gonna fly to bozeman yeah so i mean bozeman has just as many cases as marin county and we have you know less than a third of the population whoa really yeah i mean we have like 150 cases in in our county whoa Um, that's a lot sun valley has a lot of cases ketchum has a lot of cases jackson has a lot of cases um it's so, you know, along the same line. Yeah, but it's also like Galenus where you used to live in Marin and all these little like out of the way towns and, and access points. You know, like last or two weekends ago before the governor shut down all the, the beaches and trailheads, I had friends who were sending me pictures. Like Trestles was like overflowing with people. It looked like Fourth of July. 
like all these little towns were just, you know, dealing with thousands of tourists. So I kind of don't blame them, you know, having lived in small towns for a lot of my life. It's like, you know, when you have a town of like 3000 people and then like 3000 people show up from the city where there's like crazy infection rates, you're like, uh, is this the right way to you know, like do this? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. It's yeah. so weird, man. It's so weird. So hard. It's like such cascading decisions that need to be made, right? Like, okay, yeah, everyone can stay home and you can go outside, no problem. And then people leave their homes and go to other people's trailheads and you're like, wait a second, like, it's just like a cascading series of decisions. It's really strange. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if, if the U S had done what a lot of these European countries are doing in Canada and just said, stay home or get a thousand dollar ticket, like our situation would be so much better. I mean, it could be on one hand, like the spread of the infection could be better, but getting a thousand dollar ticket for being outside is doesn't sound great either. You know, there's like this, I'm just so vehemently anti-authoritarian and so afraid of uh, authoritarian nationalism and that kind of overreach that I'm pretty sensitive to both sides of that. And this whole thing has really shaken my own understanding, my own um, position on this kind of thing, because, you know, as a, anarchist for a long time. This is like the first thing in my own experience that I can, that's made me really look at like, how do we take collective action? Right. So, right. And it all kind of hinges upon this like notion that people are going to think intelligently and, and compassionately when they make decisions about how they choose to act or not to act. Yeah. And I, I would also add the, term considerate there like how far are our spheres of consideration here Um, and it's really hard like i've found it difficult to even be considerate even in my own household like am i being paranoid like there is so much that is unknown just in my own human experience how many days I've actually thought about germ theory as something that's like serious is like I could count on my fingers and toes. It's just right. so not an issue. I run camp sanitation in my kitchen, just like rinse it off and it's fine. And just like dirt in my food or, you know, I drink <laughs> spring water. I, I don't yeah. even filter out the dirt. I just drink the dirt. Who cares? It's just like, I operate yeah. on like having really high immunity and being healthy and being outside and keeping my all my systems going and so people are like oh no i'm sick i'm like well y- you can't get me sick that's how i've like always kind of operated and so it's like now it's like oh right. this is like a lot of things that we don't know and it's kind of hard to decide what um best practice is and there's so much information all the time and it's overwhelming and it's changing and it's like oh it's just difficult for people to I also think that in general, we don't have a lot of experience being deeply considerate for people that are outside of our direct sphere. So I think that that's a part of something we're seeing here. Absolutely. Well, this is awesome. I mean, just to like, just to pause and, and take a moment of reflection. It's nice to, nice to hear your voice. Nice to be in touch. (laughs) Yeah, Charles, it's good to hear you. It's good to hear you too. I feel like last time I saw you, you were like in jeans, like doing like an 80 foot kicker in Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening? I was like, uh, jeans. Yeah. Airy in the air, man. I was trying to just keep it going, you know? Yeah. What do you, first of all, are we, are we live recording? Or are we going like, to mean, I've, into this? I've started recording. I figure, you okay, know, like, yeah, we're yeah, already, yeah. I feel like we're already yeah, on a tear, great. Charles. We're already on a tear. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. And, um, and how, before we go de- any deeper, you're, uh, so you're in Bend, you're at home. Yep. You're just kind of like going through the stay home motions. Oh man. Honestly, the moment that this all happened, there was just something that just like lit off a bomb inside of me that gave me so much courage that, yeah. um, I've been running this podcast for a long time, but have only gently done interviews. I've, it's mostly been my monologues of my deep thoughts and philosophy relationships, my own stories from traveling and uh, highlining and paragliding and all these different things. Right. But since this uh, coronavirus thing, I it I felt the opportunity to one that I felt that people might be able to look beyond the veil of illusions and how our systems work and how our society works and how there are certain parts that are illusory and then there are certain parts that are necessary and to be able to kind of like zoom out and get a better idea of what's actually going on in everyone's lives and how this whole thing, this global civilization operates. Um, and it might, it might help me sound less crazy when I talk about some of these different things. Um, and also that I had been following people whose opinions and perspectives I really respected and uh, Jordan Greenhall wrote this great article and he said that one of the, the simplest things we can do is upregulate our own sovereignty and discernment. And then with our sovereignty and discernment to find the people who are doing the best work that resonates with you the most and try to lift up their voices and synthesize with them what they're saying to create, you know, to go further and to reach new places. And so I've kind of just gone off the deep end here. I think I've recorded a dozen or 15 podcasts in the last uh, five, six days, seven days, something like that. No way. Yeah, I'm on a tear. So I'm really stoked to have you on. This has been in the works for a long time. I know that we, you know, we talked about this for two years or something. Every time we get together for the ambassador summit, we're like, oh, we should do a podcast. I love your, I love your thoughts. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, likewise. So well, let's, I, I'm so stoked to be, uh, yeah, to be on. This is, this is, this is sweet. Yeah, this is sweet. So the one thing that I just like, I have been just frothing to ask you, I keep seeing these yeah. memes. I keep seeing these photos. You know, I see this satellite photo of China. That's like yeah. clear. There's no smog. There's no smoke. The factories are shut down. The cars are parked. I've seen photos of LA that I've never seen before that are just crystal clear downtown LA crystal clear. There's like the human impact has been exponentially reduced on the earth right now. And I would just love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting time. You know, just last night, Rachel, my wife, uh, Rachel Pohl and I were, we were just on a, what were we doing? We were on a walk, I think just down the, down the road or somewhere on the land. And she looked at Venus and she said, oh my gosh, it's brighter than I've ever seen it in my life. 
I was thinking, I was, you know, thinking about just the air quality here in Montana. I mean, granted it's spring, so, you know, there's not fires burning and, you know, the particulate matter is probably relatively low Mm -hmm. because of that. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what is it, what's our experience going to be like here in Montana? You know, obviously we all share one atmosphere. Uh, we're all connected. We're realizing that now more than ever. Uh, I haven't noticed anything. I do think it is more clear, but places like Venice, you know, where you've seen these photos, I haven't like fact checked them, but they seem to keep popping up. So perhaps they're authentic, you know, of the fish and the dolphins in the canals and these pictures of Beijing, uh, with the clear skies. And as you mentioned, LA, um, you know, I think, the world is going to, the natural world is going to feel a significant dose of reprieve while we all hunker down. And whether it's the way our climate responds to this or whether it's the way wildlife responds to this or whether it's the way society responds by looking inward and then looking outward through our windows and through you know, our, our, the prisms through which we see the world, I think there's going to be a monumental shift. It's remarkable to think about the degree to which humanity has pivoted since this has all begun maybe what, seven weeks ago mm-hmm. on, a, on a global scale. Um, and to realize that we do have this capacity to slow down and that if we were responding to climate change, this would be a relatively appropriate response to curb the the insatiable thirst for progress at any cost to curb the insatiable thirst for maximizing profits and yield and production. I just have to imagine there's going to be a mindset shift here where maybe forced, maybe, you know, self-realized where we, we do notice clean air. I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like for somebody who was born and raised in Beijing, who's 15 or, or younger or, and they're, they're experiencing their home and saying, Oh, clean air is an option Mm -hmm. because up to this point, it had been this abstract thing that they'd probably seen in environmental, you know, journalism or in various elements of, you know, political, you know, agendas or, or, or aspirations. Um, So I think it's really interesting, right? Like you don't know what you've lost until it's gone and i think looking at that through the opposite lens like you don't know what you have until it's right in front of you especially if you've never had it before so i think there's gonna be a lot of people who who feel that who say oh my gosh like this is an option we can have clear water we can have clear air i can live in a neighborhood where smokestacks aren't billowing you know heavy metal laden air into my community um so i'm I'm curious to see like what the social awakening does to politics, to the way we use our voices, the way we leverage our votes, the way we use our dollars. Uh, and hopefully that will translate into some sort of a pivot of mindset, um, you know, in terms of how politicians represent us. So, well, very, very interesting time for sure. Very interesting. And I think that you're totally right. And I think we're in a deep agreement that, a big change here is a motivational toolkit change. It is why are we doing the things that we are doing and what is important and how right. considerate can we be? How much foresight and wisdom can we um, endow into our decision-making individually and collectively? And 
my hope is actually further than a change in how politicians represent us and actually that we would start outgrowing the paradigm in which we are ruled by politicians and decisions are made for us and our representation changes. And I don't want to get too far in the weeds on that, but there is this, I'll just kind of share with you my intellectual um, evolution here as far as my experience with climate change and the, the, the movement in general. And I think that what you just said of, you know, what we're seeing right now would be a reasonable response to climate change is absolutely terrifying. And I think that everyone in their right mind, um, or at least the, the vast majority of humanity would run away from that, uh, call to action, a call to action of this scope, this, um, you know, that is going to bring life as we know it to its knees. I think that as a call to action to respond to climate change is terrifying. And I wouldn't, um, I think that one of my fears has been that the necessary response is something as dramatic as that. I've also read some articles that talk about how, uh, you know, it's not a as drastic of a effect uh, or a drastic of a change as what we're seeing right now that needs to happen to tilt the scales onto the side of sustainability. But I think that one thing that people are or have been dealing with is that the motivational toolkits of climate change have been the same as political power and to use political power in order to take action on the climate is a sticky subject um, for me because I think that uh, the motivational implications of politics are typically power and control and not we have, you know, so many people right now are so, reluctant to trust the authority that has for so long been abused so uh so obviously you know that's the media the government you know um and so people are really reluctant for that and i think that as you know that's my biggest reluctance to the global warming and climate change movement in general is the rah 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 to use the government force to to change the whole thing. But I do see it, it, this whole coronavirus is really shaking my beliefs and my visions. And it's really shown me that, like I said, for the first time in my life, we are really viscerally exposed to the need for us to have collective sense-making, good information, and for us all to be able to have the right discernment and sovereignty to actually distill what is true from the noise, the signal from the noise, the baby from the bathwater, as well as how do we come together as a global community to take action when things are literally existentially threatening to our species and our livelihoods, you know? So it's like, it's a really deep thing, you know, and I, I have always appreciated your perspective because you're rural and you see, and you seem to have a connection with the people of prior generations, the hunters and the farmers who are, mm, I would say like separated from the nuts and bolts of the millennial 
climate change movement. So I just love, like, just just let me hear what you what this kind of <laughs> thought brings up for you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and everything you said, you know, I think really really resonates, and you know, they're all you know thoughts and perspectives I really I really connect with. You know, I think the two themes for me that I I hope will stem from this experience, this global experience is, you know, the idea of altruism and the idea of connectivity. Uh, connectivity obviously is, you know, has been slapped in the forefront of our attention uh, as we realize that something can start in a province of China and spread to almost every, well, to, to every continent on earth. And, you know, I'm not sure of the, of the current statistics, but I imagine every country on earth, if not now, shortly. Um, and then altruism, you know, I think there's, there's this, this thirst for good news. There's this thirst for connection with people and, and this realization that we all are experiencing something relatively common, you know, amongst, you know, the, the earth as a population. And those two ideas, altruism and connectivity, in my eyes, are two of the biggest drivers, two of the biggest levers for climate change action. And to your point initially or earlier about politicians and uh, the reservations that you and many have around, you know, putting them on this pedestal of power to make decisions to address this existential threat. But, you know, reversing that narrative, there's so much power that we as individuals hold and have, you know, whether it's through the way we spend our dollars, the, the purchasing choices we make. Um, the lifestyle choices we make. I mean, now we're all having to really look inwards and make these lifestyle pivots to protect ourselves. I think that those ingredients are uh, consistent with the ingredients you would need to make lifestyle choices to protect the earth. And I remember in graduate school, in my first year, a professor said that climate change will become relevant when you or somebody you know is directly affected. Mm-hmm. And while this COVID epidemic is very much at our doors in our, in our, you know, emotional space, affecting our neighbors, our family, our friends, um, our community members, climate change, I think will continue, but not, I think it will continue to affect us in more and more dramatic ways. Yeah. Visceral ways. Yeah, I mean, even thinking about Montana and where I live in southwest Montana, you know, late summer has become the season of smoke. And it's this thing that kind of just like weighs in the back of my mind as summer marches, you know, towards us. Is you know, we had smoke last year in May. We didn't luckily have a horrible smoke year, not like places in BC and Alberta. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you live in a community like Banff or Fernie? where you're literally, or, you know, Kelowna, where you're, you're, you're experiencing three months, a quarter of the year, you can't go outside. Where it's literally hazardous just to be outside. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people in a lot of places, it might be a small island in the South Pacific where you're losing ground and you're going to be underwater or place communities in this Louisiana uh, Delta, Mississippi River Delta that are underwater or the Eastern seaboard, North Carolina. I mean, there are so many people who are experiencing this, this all hands on deck. The, our world is changing and or over as we know it. 
in various capacities. I mean, obviously you can leave, but in terms of your world, your home, the place where everybody is right now, you know, take shelter. It's this thing, this behavior that we've all kind of adopted and employed into our daily existence to take shelter. But couple that need to have a place of protection and security with a world that doesn't afford us that possibility. And we're in, I think, a very, as you said earlier, a sticky situation. You know, that's that's a tough spot. So I hope that by adopting these mindsets and these toolkits that are going to get us through this, because all storms pass, we will, you know, humanity will get through this epidemic. Communities and countries already are, you know, moving beyond the kind of the peaks of, of you know, the, the, the effects. I hope that society can remember and recall and leverage what we've learned and what we've employed and adopted towards the environment because everybody in their own way is going to start experiencing these very visceral, real elements of climate change. You know, now, now more than ever, you know, every year it's probably going to continue to be a very relevant part of our year. Um, so it's, it's all, I've, I've heard some people say that this is like a trial run. You know, this experience for humanity is a trial run for climate change. Um, and whether that's fair, unfair, accurate, or, or inaccurate, I do think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of validity there. And I think that there's going to be a whole generation of people. I, I read in uh, a blog this morning that from an author, from a thinker named Seth Godin, who said this is the generation C, Gen C. And that there's going to be this whole generation of people who are looking for something that previous generations have not looked for or not expect, not expected. Um, and like we've talked about connectivity, altruism, um, you know, divisions of power and, and an ability for the individual to be protected and to have that opportunity to communicate, to have community, to have family. Um, so yeah, it's definitely setting the stage for something I hope positive that would be very positive and, and transformative. Yeah. I share that hope with you, Charles. I really do. And I think that when we talk about those motivational toolkits, I feel like the perspective that comes with them is uh, somewhat of a integral, holistic, all encompassing, omni considerate. I think that one of the, one of the sticks in the spokes of the climate change movement is a fixation on certain statistics, certain numbers. And just to preface this, I would say that the coronavirus as a trial run for our necessary action towards climate change is in one way heartening that we can take collective action, make lifestyle pivots really rapidly across an entire globe. And on the other hand, we have witnessed the cognitive dissonance, the cognitive biases in these mind viruses that have, I would say, spawned out of a number of decades of our information ecology being 
polluted, broken, poisoned. It's the well of information that society depends on being shit in and pissed on and abused in the name of commercialism and politics um, that have led people to be extremely reluctant to make these changes dramatically. And it's also, there's a time element in it. It's like uh, early on to take action on an epidemic. If you're early and you take strong enough action to be effective, it's going to seem um, overbearing. It's going to seem crazy because you know, the numbers are low and the action is heavy and it's like, it just seems crazy. Um, and the analogy there with climate change is like, Hey, here are some scientists who have this graph that, you know, in the next 20 years, we need to take pretty swift and heavy action right now to avoid this, what seems like a fairly minuscule temperature increase in 20 years. So I see more clearly now the difficulty of global action on things that are somewhat difficult to experience. And just what you're saying, like, you know, there's so few people who have really experienced global warming uh, or uh, climate change on a visceral personal level that it, the coronavirus has really shown me what scope the global climate change movement really is up against. Yeah. And there's this, you know, along those lines, there's this idea and, you know, that's, that's used often in the world of conservation, the world of ecology, it's called shifting baseline syndrome. And the, the place where I often see this, this phrase used is when they're talking, when people are talking about the current ecosystem, the current, state of biodiversity on earth and if you ask the young person today what does spring in montana feel sound and look like they might say oh well you know the snowpack you know the snow doesn't get below the tree line here and maybe i've seen three or four bluebirds on a good spring you know they have these these benchmarks for what spring means today in 2020 and that person will grow up looking back at those early springs when there were five bluebirds and a hundred geese and it only snowed five days in March. But if we go back to our parents and our grandparents' generation, or especially our grandparents' generation, which, you know, they're you know, moving on, passing on, uh, some of them, we forget what their experience was like, what their Montana spring was when the clouds may have been full of birds and the forests may have been full of bird song and the bluebirds would have come in flocks of 50 and a hundred and 200. And all of these moments in nature would have been far richer and far more diverse and robust. And I think with, with people taking these nuggets of, of climate change, news and media to heart what comes with that is this idea that so much of our experience is influenced by the lens through which we see the world and climate change obviously has human impacts but it has, has tremendous tremendous ecological and environmental impacts we're talking about 
you know, per, loss of permafrost. We're talking about loss of, of, of ice older than four years in the Arctic. We're talking about loss of biodiversity. We're talking about, you know, all of these, these things, all of these shifts that do inherently require a bit of experience, a bit of education, a, an ability for the observer to see, to see what they're looking for, to observe. If you don't know what spring should be, how can you know what's at risk or what we're losing? Of course. So I think that's kind of the thing that, tr- that I struggle with. When people talk about climate change, sea level rise, fires, yes, those are all like very conspicuous effects. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about losing 45% of the bird species on Earth, or we talk about losing, you know, fish stocks in a dramatic way across the globe. Yeah. Or you know, these the, the rise in algal blooms and, and hypoxia, you know, parts of the ocean with no oxygen. I mean, these are all things that that the the layman might not see, and therefore isn't incorporated into their take on the world. So it's it's a it's a it's a challenging topic for I think people to be educated on because there's an inherent complexity to the narrative and to the data Mm -hmm. and it's it's hard to bridge that gap right like covid is so approachable everybody understands the flu yeah when you look at the death rate associated with this flu and the 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 degree to which it's contagious people can can gather that when we talk about climate change what does the average person think when they hear a statistic about methane being released from the permafrost in the, in the, in the tundra? It's so you know? nebulous. It's so nebulous, you know, and then they see a, de- you know, one degree centigrade rise in global, you know, average temperature. So nebulous for them. They're like, Oh, well, I live in San Francisco and it's typically 65 in December. So maybe it'll be 68 in December. Like sounds pretty sweet. I can go to the beach. Yeah, no problem. So it's, it is, and I don't know the answer. I don't think anybody does, but it's this very, it's this challenging narrative, right? Because there's so many complex moving parts and social media in some ways has made the climate change groundswell more influential in terms of shaping the world and effective and has been a positive force. I also think social media and this opportunity for everybody to have a voice and perspective has also diluted the conversation with a lot of perspectives and opinions that have no grounding in, in science or data or understanding of the landscape. I agree. I agree. And I just want to synthesize and the analogy it. I make. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say the analogy I make is it's as though by owning a car, you're a diesel mechanic expert. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's on, everybody on earth like has an opinion about the environment because we've all like gone hiking or looked out a window or like felt, you know, the, the, the sea on our feet, but those people are then making opinions and, and spreading information and speaking on, on forums and, you know, making presentations about climate change. And I don't doubt that the passion, the enthusiasm and the, the hope to contribute positive energy to the movement is there, but there's also this very, very blatant disconnect in some cases between what they're saying and what the data is saying. And that to me is troubling. It also makes, I think moving forward in a, in an informed way, challenging. Yeah, I hear that. And 
one of the things that comes up for me is this idea that we talk about in paragliding that we say the normalization of deviation. That is that mm. as you have a baseline for what is safe and then you start to deviate from that, sometimes that's, you know, the first time that's just a deviation from what is normal. That's just you taking a little extra risk that day. But as time goes on, it can become insidious and a new normal is created through that deviation. And you begin to not recognize it as a deviation. You don't recognize it as an increase in risk. And what ends up happening is as we go flying our little nylon bed sheets and dental floss into the mountains, we end up getting, getting away with things that we attribute to skill or right decision-making where it's like, you know, I, I make it out of that Valley and I think, Oh, that must've been fine. But I actually really narrowly dodged something that could have killed me, but I didn't even recognize it. And so this is an insidious and compounding effect where as we go on, um, you know, my, Je my friend Jeff Shapiro, I just interviewed him for the podcast the other day, and he says, things that have never happened happen all the time. And our, our intuitions, our intuitions, the way we feel about what we know, right? Not, not exactly what we know, but how we feel about what we know is parsed. It is created by our experience. And we go through life gaining this feeling that, oh, it's, this is fine. This is fine. I must be making the right decisions because the grocery store still has colorful vegetables and everything is still <laughs> going according to plan. And TP is on the shelves. TP is on the shelves. <laughs> and, you know, the, our intuitions in a time like COVID, in a time like global warming, our intuitions can be not only insufficient to make fully informed, properly sensed decisions, but they can be misleading in the face of those kinds of risks. Absolutely. And I think intuition could also be replaced with emotion. You know, that's something that we talk a lot about, talk about a lot in the hunting and conservation space is how does emotion influence the way we make decisions? I mean, emotion obviously has a play in every decision we make, but I also think that there's something, something tricky there as well. When you're making a decision based on intuition with a dose of emotion on a topic that, as you pointed out from the very get go of the conversation is rapidly evolving, right? Like think about uh -huh. all the, the science and the medical experts who have made, uh, you know, posts or written blogs or, or features about COVID or about climate change and how much it's, and how much the degrees to which those narratives have changed or pivoted or, or been reinforced or, or been replaced by new data or new discoveries, new interpretations of the data. I mean, that also I think is an inherently challenging thing for the layman, for the public to grasp especially when there's so much going on right we're all emotionally charged in this time we're all looking for something or grasping for clarity or grasping for understanding for safety for for some you know sliver of of hope and positivity when shit is really hitting the fan for a lot of people 
for everybody, but for, for certain people in a, in a much more significant way. And I think what it boils down to, if you look at this from a, from a kind of critical standpoint, is that science, like the medical sciences, stand on the shoulders of previous interpretations of data, right? Like science mm-hmm. is inherently this work in progress. A there rolling wheel. A rolling wheel. Like we know the world is, is not flat, right? We know that birds came from dinosaurs, right? There are, there are truths. There are things, theories, and, and facts that are relatively indisputable. But so much of the so many of the nuances of these these theories of science of our our interpretations of data which we assume is collected well and collected in a way which is you know repeatable and 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 done you know with with accuracy and and you know and the kind of the the processes in mind but it is hard right because we're all looking for answers and with with something like covid or climate change we're learning more every day as we scrutinize what yesterday taught us or what we thought we learned yesterday. And I think that is a tough spot to be in for, for society. Yeah. And I think that honestly, what that brings up for me is just the idea of the information ecology and the reality that science is a rolling wheel and is on the shoulders of its predecessors in general. It is, you know, like I've, I've on a number of days as I, as on a number of days, I felt even just in one day, my emotions and my certainty around the situation, you know, I do reading and I think, okay, like this is actually what's going on. And then I go out and ride my bike and halfway up the hill, I'm just thinking like, how the fuck do I actually know that this thing is even real, you know? And like I said earlier, the, the, ecology of our information, which is just a term that I really love because it is so, it's like, uh, it's just so visual and just, just a really dynamic way to think of it is really broken and people don't trust it. And scientists have been bought and sold for Exxon, for Pfizer, you know, like, and the government has been so not just complicit, like even more, like they've absolutely done it. And so at this point, it is really hard to, you know, even like, like I know you personally, so I can vet your perspective in a, in a way like you're in my Dunbar 150, you know, you're, you're within the, the <laughs> sphere of people that I like actually have some kind of relationship with, but like, we're so disconnected from any of the information, not just to mention the, the effects, but we're so disconnected from the information and the information. I think that in a free society, our system of information is actually something that's very reverent. It's very, it's like almost sacred, like, like it's really important. And we're seeing that so much now because if we, we can imagine that if we had some kind of sacred system of information that the moment that scientists confirmed, yes, this is a novel virus that is very contagious. Here are the facts. This is what our projections are that people would be like, you know, this collective sense making that we have that has encompassed the globe is 
switched on and is telling us things that we can actually take action with some kind of confidence. Right. And I just think we're so far from that right now. It's really hard in both the climate change discussion and in the COVID discussion. Because Florida, I think that the the vast majority of Florida is still just cruising around. (laughs) Which is insane. I mean, you know, I... I would venture to say that parts of Montana, I mean, we are in a shelter in place as of, I believe on Saturday, but um, you know, I think there's parts of Montana that are probably that feel relatively, you know, unchanged. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, to your, to your point about this, this, this sacred source of of information uh, and and how it would be so transformative for, for the, for the globe, global community. I think back to science, right? Like the way I see the world is rooted, rooted in this place of, of scientific kind of process and something that I really appreciate about the scientific, especially the peer reviewed process, the place where scientific papers are, are reviewed and published, uh, much of which informs hopefully the, the news that we're all, uh, you know, exposed to through our various outlets is that there is always a place dedicated in a science paper for a discussion about what could have been neglected, overlooked, or done improperly, or perhaps inaccurately in the study. Mm-hmm. So not only does the science paper say initially in the introduction, on what shoulders does this research stand on? What predecessors influenced this work or set the stage? Then it goes into what was actually done to conduct the study showing full transparency. Then it goes into the kind of the, the, the results and the discussion of those results. What, what is the, the researcher, researchers, what do they, uh, how do they interpret the data? And then two, in the conclusion, you talk about how this data fits into the broader theme, the broader field of study, the broader narrative. And there's something, and then, and then that manuscript is then reviewed and peer reviewed by a, a review board and then also just by people in the community who you know share their feedback and there's yeah. something really special about that process obviously there have been many science papers that were uh you know published and they shouldn't have been or published unjustly with political or social drivers you know involved but i would say there's a large body of scientific work out there that stands on this the shoulders of this process and that's something that is definitely lacking in in a lot of the journalism that we're exposed to. I and totally agree. And it's I, troubling, right? Cuz we don't have those checks and balances. So you read something you're like, "Oh, this is my favorite morning news show." Yeah. You know, so and so says it and it's it's gospel. Yeah, and I think that just even neurologically we're so bottlenecked on our own bandwidth to take what we hear, you know, like the amount of people who can take a leading edge ecological scientific paper, read it and vet it in the way that you can or an oncologist can is like extremely small. So we are just constantly, we're just constantly trying to reduce our cognitive overhead and try to distill the truth without having to read every single scientific paper. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's a bottleneck of our own ability to understand and comprehend. But another thing that I want to just point out is that I think that in the 
Can you hear me all right, Charles? I can, yes. Okay. Um, another thing I want to point out is that in this, under this theme of omni-consideration, where we can consider as many different perspectives on the truth as possible and as far from ourselves as possible, I think that there is a big element that the climate change movement is missing. And it is this idea that I think that in general, the reason that people are reluctant to look at their impact on the earth is analogous to the disdain they have for certain parts of themselves for their own shadow, for the things that they do wrong, for the ways that they impact their partner, their neighbor, themselves, the parts of themselves that they, they cordon off and they won't look at. To be able to really, in an embodied sense, take a look at my impact in, on the earth, it comes after looking at these other impacts, emotional impacts, these psychological, um, like I would even say like a spiritual, like a psycho-spiritual toolkit is needed because uh, I think that the science angle is intellectual. And I think it is so important because our minds are so powerful, but they are, that is just a slice of the pie. And I think that that drum has been banged on as loud as we can possibly take. And I think that it's not that we need to stop that, but we need to support it with these other ways of thinking because just as people learn in different ways, there's different parts of us that learn in different ways. And for us to be embodied in the sense that like, I will be an embodied positive effect in bringing about uh, equanimity in the climate and my environment, I have to convince a number of parts of me, right? My, my head is there. My head is with you. But there's also parts of me that like viscerally are afraid of tyranny and authoritarianism. And there's a, a fear of my lifestyle changing and my economics changing. And those are all really super emotional and nebulous. And it's like, I don't know. I feel like science alone is, will fall far short because I think that what we see in this COVID thing is like there is the intellectual like here, this is what an exponential graph looks like. And the vast majority of people have no idea how to viscerally understand what that growth looks like and what ends up being the string that tugs them into some kind of action is this like, it's a social one. It's an emotional one. They don't want to be the, they don't want to be the person who is, seems like a kook who is afraid. They also don't want to be the person who gets sick and spreads it to a bunch of people and gets other people sick. And there's like this, like this social fabric is really uh, a super important part. And I feel like that is almost more powerful here in this coronavirus thing that I've seen than the graphs and the scientists. Absolutely. And I think the, the biggest thing, which, you know, which I touched on a little earlier is that the flu and the idea of, of 
of spreading the flu to friends and family. Mm-hmm. Like those two ideas of, of, of infecting loved ones or community members and getting the flu, a flu, which is perhaps three times more deadly than the common flu. Those things are super, super relatable and understandable. And I think mm-hmm. when you can, distill something you know covid there's a lot of abstract elements of covid there's like the science the the virility the all the research that's gone into the strain of the flu but it can be diluted down into okay everybody you've had the flu now imagine one three times as as severe with the with a possibility a, you know a, a scary possibility of perhaps killing your grandparents that package that's that narrative is an effective one because people can relate to it Mm -hmm. to your point. The scientific world has, I think missed the mark in some ways and achieved the mark in others to make climate change, which is a, which is a very complex, relatively abstract thing, uh, digestible. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a challenge. There are elements I think which people get right. Like sea level rise. People can just like visualize that they can see, land disappearing visually in a photo or a film or glaciers receding, right? Those are like the kind of canaries in the coal mine that media and others lock onto. Mm-hmm. But to your point, there are not those trusted, vetted, dis, dis, easily dis, uh, digestible, distilled narratives that touch on all the points of climate change that are made available, you know, easily available to the masses. And an example that I constantly go back to are colleagues and friends I've worked with here in Montana who come from a mindset that challenges the, the idea of climate change, right? There's like an obviously a, a rich uh, political, social, theological, even economic uh, kind of counter narrative to climate change. And I've had friends pull me aside and say, hey, break this down, break down climate change for me, explain it to me. And I do. And I've, one of my great friends actually told me after a conversation, we're coming back from hunting. He said, I believe you, you know, you have made me believe in climate change just because I trust you. And the way you explained it makes sense. And I think it's that idea of trust. People don't have the ability to trust the narrative, especially when it's a complex one. But again, back to COVID, it's just not that complex. So people I think get it. So there doesn't need to be that high level of trust to say, okay, it's a bad flu. It doesn't seem like it's that abstract of an idea. But Mm -hmm. to tell somebody that like the release of methane in the Russian tundra is going to somehow affect their life in Arizona or their kid's life in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit more of a stretch for people. It is. Hmm. Yeah. The really complex. Not to say there's an easy answer. (laughs) There's not. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's no easy answers right now. And we are all in need of answers <laughs> emotionally, right? right? As people are locked inside of their house, they're like, wait, how long is this going to last? And people are like, we're not sure. And they're like, that's not a good enough answer for me. <laughs> like, rightly so. <laughs> that's not a very good answer for how long are you going to be stuck in your house? We're not sure is not a great answer there. But yeah, it's really interesting actually, you know, just this, the, 
connections that I have been noticing between the climate change movement and COVID are really, I think, stark. I think they're pretty analogous. And I think that whoever said that it's a trial run is uh, on, on something. And I think that, that it should be, you know, I think there's a number of different ways that you change people's behavior. And I think that the climate change movement has been stuck on changing people's minds. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great call out. You know, I think the behavior element is something that we can all like, we can own that, right. Changing the way that we think is, is I think is a bigger ask of people. But to say, change the way you spend your dollars on the weekends, change the way you, you know, the companies you support when you're at the market. These are all, I think, smaller bites to take Mm -hmm. for people. Mm -hmm. And one of the, I think, calming things about staying home, if if staying home is one of the, the greatest tools we have to combat the, you know, to flatten the curve. That is something that I think is very is comforting to people because they can do that. Everybody knows how to stay home. Mm-hmm. Whereas with climate change, to curb climate change, like you said, there's a lot of emotional, economic, uh, spiritual maybe levers that need to be pulled to flatten the you know the quote unquote curve for climate change. But if if we can help solve this crisis with COVID by just staying home. I think there's something that, that yeah, is inherently kind of calming about that because it's a, it's a pretty simple act, pretty simple pivot from a lifestyle perspective, maybe not mentally for the long term for a lot of people. I don't mean to, you know, underplay like what people are going through, but the idea that by just being home, you can have an impact. I think mm-hmm. that's a pretty, pretty powerful um, kind of connection we have to this entire process. Yeah, it's really interesting, man. It's really interesting. Uh, the other day I interviewed um, my friend Matt Cohn. He's a meditation instructor. And he's talking about how when people are addicted to emotion, they're actually addicted to an intensity in emotion. And mm. if the person is you know, at a negative eight, to go to a positive eight, they actually have to go to negative seven negative six, negative five, all the way to zero, just the doldrums, the boredom to actually ascend into some kind of positive thing. And I think that's analogous of our impacts. If we're having a negative impact, I mean, staying home brings us to zero. And then where do we go from leaving our homes into having a positive influence on our ecology, um, I think is another part that is kind of left out of the conversation. Like, uh, one of the things that's really put me off about the climate change conversation is almost uh, what I would describe as like an anti-human thing that talks about human as parasite. And I just couldn't disagree more. I think we are so nature. We are created by nature. We are from nature and will return to nature, whether the world is struck by an asteroid or explodes from the center out. We are just absolutely a part of the universe. And I think that that is something we can't um, lose sight of. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a few kind of mental pivots I've made in the last few weeks. One is thinking about food, mm-hmm. right? I've written about 
the UN's report on our topsoil, how we only have, you know, a few decades left of harvests worldwide. I've thought deeply about the state of our global ecosystem of biodiversity of bird declines, but I had never been acutely aware of what food means to me or of, 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 of what food means to me, of, of the value I place on food mm-hmm. here in a regional local sense in Montana, right? I hunt all fall. I have, you know, a deer in the freezer, which will feed us. Um, we have access to other, you know, foraging opportunities, but produce is something that I've become acutely aware of living in a place where it's still snowing and it's freezing and you're not growing things outside. Mm-hmm. And to think about that, right. To be so connected to food, which I, obviously people are, because if you go on Amazon or you go to the market, things are sold out. Everybody's thinking about food and sustenance. Mm-hmm. And to a degree, I'm sure people are thinking about, Oh, what can I grow? What can I grow in my house? What can I grow in my, in my yard or on my porch or my windowsill or in my kitchen under a light. And I think this looking inwards, this reconnection with nature, this awareness that this virus came from animals was passed on to humans. And I just read this morning that there's a possibility, some new data suggesting that COVID could be passed on to primates, which would be, could be just devastating to populations of imperiled primates like orangutans and you know chimpanzee and gorilla and all these other primates that are struggling across their ranges across the globe they do social distancing much much less efficiently (laughs) right right but all these threads are bringing us back to this idea that yes we are part of the global ecosystem Mm -hmm. absolutely that we need we need plants to fuel our bodies we need sunlight to feel good we need air and oxygen and nature and and land, public land, to escape to. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have populations across the globe clamoring for access to nature. And people who are stuck inside, you know, dreaming about the day they'll get to go to the, to the sea the, the seashore again, or to go backcountry skiing, or just go on a walk with their friends. Mm-hmm. Right? These are all the things we're longing for. And I think that's our, like, that deep, deep DNA kind of scratching back to our, the, you know, the, the front of our mind and our our mind's eye saying, Hey, like our, our world is not, you know, based on Xbox and Instagram and these digital relationships. Everybody's just so thirsty for that real connection with dirt and air and water and people. And we're realizing through this experience that, yeah, we are part of the system, right? We can, we can build a, a, a hundred story skyscraper in the middle of a city and feel just like we live in the most perfect sterilized Cloroxed, you know, bubble, if that's what you want. But in a time like today, I can assure you that person is thinking about opening a window or having a bite of fresh food or going outside. And there's something really powerful there in terms of that reconnection with nature, that reconnection with the processes of earth. Yeah. I love that you bring that up. I think that is just a really potent silver lining here that we are like I said, you know, the veil is pulled very thin or completely away from our systems here and just our our food system has, you know, as Jordan Greenhall says, we have traded efficiency 
for resiliency for a long time and it's a bad trade. And our food system is so incredibly efficient that in Bozeman, where it's still snowing, you can have avocados and mangoes and lettuce and all these things that do not grow there ever and especially not right now. And I think that, um, you know, the Lao Tzu quote of it's better to be a warrior in the garden than a gardener in a war. And that's not a, the garden there in that analogy is not the farm. That's not growing food. The garden is the yard. It's the lawn and the warrior is just frolicking. And it's better to be a warrior who can sustain himself and protect his kin and contribute to society in times of peace than it is to be someone who is just perpetually addicted to frolicking. And when shit hits the fan has no ability, no recourse, no knowledge of permaculture of their supply chain, how to hunt, how to skin an animal, how to feed and, and can and grow and make worthwhile connections with other people. And this is what I cling to right now, Charles, as the silver lining of the whole COVID thing. I'm just, this is my, the source of my inspiration that the chance, the time is now for me to speak up and say, okay, there's better ways for us to look at things. There's better ways for us to motivate. We can work together in smaller groups, tighter. And as our groups work with each other, we learn and we grow and we are more resilient and we are more anti-fragile. And when, you know, I just got off an interview with Rich Bartlett, this guy who's designing these really complex cooperative systems and non-hierarchical business strategies. And he proposed a question of how does a stress turn into growth, which is like the essence of anti-fragility. And I think that that is exactly what we have to ruminate on right now is how do we turn a stress into growth? How do we turn the stress of the coronavirus into a growth? How do we take the stress of climate change and turn it into growth? Because it is a positive lens. It is how do we contribute? How do we progress? How do we develop ourselves individually and collectively? Where are we going? How can we beautify? How can we beautify the ecology that we live in? How can we, you know, I just love to think of the, you know, zoom out to Mars and look at earth through the telescope and be like, wow, look at how they've managed the rivers to so perfectly integrate into their society and look at how they manage how they, you know, so carefully uh, measure what is important and keep track of it and watch their own impact. And it's like our potential is so high. And I think if we ruminate on the highest potential and not the doomsday thing, I think the people are kind of losing their taste for the doom and gloom call out culture of the myriad different ways that we are killing the polar bears and everything. I mean, I'll just speak for myself when I say that. And I'm actually, you know, the, my own evolution in that has been like the call out culture of like looking at what government has become tyrannical in the last hundred years is just like a never ending story. And now I'm kind of tired of that. And I'm actually wanting to move on to the more pragmatic and more high level, high touch, high trust 
closely connected, high human potential thoughts and ruminations. And I'm super stoked to connect with you on that because I think that you're a thought leader in a, in a really important field and you have a similar perspective. Thanks, Ari. Yeah, no, and I, and I think that that's all, I mean, everything you said resonates so deeply. And, and one thing I'd, I would just kind of add to, to your last statement is this idea of stress and this idea of stress leading to, you know, tremendous growth and transformation with mm-hmm. you know, having that, that potential. I was recently reading some, some, uh, some science papers looking at the impacts of stress on, on, on the human body and no stress actually has they've found has can have negative impacts on our physiology while excess, uh, you know, ongoing recurring stress can have, you know, negative effects as Uh well, but it's this low level of stress, these periods of stress that do actually build immunity. And I think there's something really special there. And that sense of these moments of stress force our hands, they force us to, to adapt. Mm -hmm. And while this moment we're in right now with COVID is a, obviously a tremendous dose of stress. I think there is potential as you've pointed out to have this tremendous transformation. And I think to grasp on to these silver linings and, you know, our resiliency and the notion that all storms will pass and the idea and the, and the hope that, that from this beautiful things will come is where I'm trying to, you know, keep my field of view focused on. Um, it's, it's so easy to get caught up in, yeah, the doom and gloom. And, you know, even to think about social media, right? Like I, my wife, we all have, you know, following the social media and I've probably all experienced in varying degrees that call out culture and these, these spates of negativity that so often, you know, pervade our feeds. Um, and hopefully now, you know, there's this sense of, of, of awareness and that we are all in this, this human experience together and that we are all vulnerable. We all have feelings. We are all, you know, capable of amazing things and we're all capable of feeling tremendous loss and suffering. And one of the things that's been really exciting and, and heartwarming is to see these comment threads where people are saying, just to strangers, Hey, how are you doing? What's going on? How can I help? You know, and people banding together to cooperate mm-hmm. and it's, it's just such a nice pivot from, I would say, this kind of overbearing feeling of negativity that I think had co-opted a lot of the social media space for so long. Yeah, and I think what you're pointing at there is what I would call like emotional intimacy or vulnerability, where we're actually beginning to see on a broader scope the deep and profound power of sharing genuinely what you're feeling, whatever that is. I think that when we were talking earlier about accepting all the different parts of ourselves before we can accept our external impacts, we have to accept our internal impacts. I think that emotional vulnerability and intimacy, even between our closest friends and ourselves, journaling and therapy and reflection introspection, meditation, all of these things are um, a really critical element. And I think that they are, like you said, 
you know, they are part of the silver lining that people are starting to realize that they have emotional needs that need to be met over the internet that has for so long devolved more and more into an anonymous keyboard warrior um, mentality where our dynamics of interaction with the people around us deviate from the standards of interaction that have been built up by culture over so long. Um, but yeah, I, I'm so glad that I'm so glad that we're in communication and I want to continue to learn from you and, um, and, and hear these perspectives. I think that you're doing a great job and, um, I'd love a subscription to the modern huntsman and I think I'm going to buy a bow and this has really made me, yes. um, I, I, uh, am my kitchen is for the vast majority vegan. Um, and I've killed some Robins with a 22 when I was like 14 and I shot the first one and thought it was cool. And then the second one I just cried and I was like, what am I doing? And then when I was like 19 or 20, I thought I was mature enough to then shoot a duck and I killed the duck with a shotgun and just pulling it out of the pond. Like I couldn't, like it was so shiny and so beautiful. And I was like, what the fuck, man? Like I cannot kill things to eat them. And so, but, um, I'm lucky to live where I do. And I think that when shit hits the fan, having some sustenance that, um, trots around on four legs is something that becomes uh, more of a question for me. So. Yeah. And I think so much of, you know, food and, and again, connection is all, you know, we see it through our personal lens and, you know, I think there's no right way to eat. I think there's no right way to nourish oneself, whether it's from a information standpoint or emotional standpoint or from a caloric standpoint. I think the biggest thing that hopefully this time, this conversation and the time we're experiencing right now teaches us is just to be open and to be able to pivot and to be able to adapt. And I think through that ability to adapt, we'll be resilient. And I think that's, you know, something to be excited about. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time. This has been such a fun conversation and I hope that we can have another one soon. Yeah. Um, it's been far too long and I'm just stoked to hear you're doing well. And I have you in my mind, steered into my mind, wearing those jeans, doing that crazy, like 80 foot kicker. <laughs> so I hope we can do that again soon. Uh, yeah, Charles. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for everybody listening, if you want to learn more about me or my work, you can go to Charles charlesposts.com or you can check me out on Instagram at charles underscore post. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I highly recommend checking it out. Charles is a very thoughtful writer and very knowledgeable about our uh, natural world. And it's a, you have a great Instagram feed. I really enjoy it. Thanks, Ari. Well, I appreciate you and so grateful for the time. Okay, buddy. Thanks. Let's stay in touch. All right, dude. Sounds good, man. Be well. Yeah, you too. See ya. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed that talk as much as I did. Charles is really, really rad and so articulate. He's a super fun guy. Follow him on Instagram at Charles Post. You can also check out his website, charlespost.com. He's got a bunch of great stuff on there. If you like this podcast, share it, subscribe, leave a review, and consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate your support keeping this thing 100% listener funded. I hope you guys stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. Let me know what you think. Feel free to email me any questions or inquiries or people you think I should be 
uh, interviewing or any encouragement you want to give back to me, any feedback, things you want to hear, different types of music, any kind of anything, you've got air at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy. We'll talk soon. Peace.